Hey y'all, it's Trina and it's April and we are honoring Autism Awareness Month and here is our hot topic. Unfortunately, it's a desperate situation. Black children who are neurodivergent are mistreated, criminalized, and pushed out of school at high rates. For example, just last month, an 11-year-old black autistic child was at school and he was bullied and physically attacked and three teacher's aides watched and did absolutely nothing. Those teacher's aides were fired last month. Um, however, the question still remains, like, why aren't teacher's aides who are paid to actually support children? It's one of the resources that's provided for children who have different learning needs or different abilities um, or who are neurodivergent to have support. Like those supports are the supports that parents advocate for, that we fight for in IEPs. And those people who are support supposed to support our children be there for them, to support them, to help them navigate a world that is actually not even made for them, actually stood by and let the violence happen. And so I have a lot of questions about, like, why don't people want to protect black children? Why aren't black children safe? Is it because of a lack of understanding? Is it because of a lack of training? And how can we make sure that black neurodiverse children are safe? How do we make sure that our children are tested and actually able to be diagnosed? Because data shows that black children are underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And instead of receiving a diagnosis to get the supports that they need, they're actually labeled as bad problematic they're pushed out of school um, and there's a lot of cases that have happened recently where neurodivergent neurodivergent children are being um, held in detainment rather than being given the supports that they need right and we know that black children are always at um, greater impact in these institutions that are not built for us and so what can we do as a people to make sure that our children who learn differently, who have um, neurodivergence, receive the love and support that they need and that they deserve, not only from teachers and administrators, but also from our families and our communities. It's time for us as a people to honor and acknowledge that all of us have different learning styles. All of us may not be, you know, neurotypical. And the question is, what is neurotypical? And who gets to determine what typical is? And instead of us trying to force our kids to fit into these boxes, it's time for us to push through the boxes and stop being afraid to have these conversations that may seem taboo or may seem like something that we don't want to talk about because it's time to talk about it. Our children are impacted by systems of oppression just as much as we are. And it impacts the way that we function. It impacts the way that we think. It impacts the way that we feel and so instead of just trying to ignore it it's time for us to talk about it and so for this episode of parenting for liberation i'm speaking with natasha nelson who is a certified positive discipline educator and she's a stay-at-home mom with two autistic black girls and she teaches about positive discipline and ways that we can support our neurodivergent children we're excited for this conversation because it's time that we had it in our community check it out raising black children in the united states can be really scary and as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to Parenting for Liberation podcast. And I am your host, Trina Green Brown. Each month, I'm joined by other black parents and we discuss our own journeys to push past our fears so that we can raise our beautiful black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody. Hey, y'all, this is Trina. You're listening to Parenting for Liberation. And I am here with Natasha Nelson, who is the creator of Supernova Mama. And their mission is to help black and neurodiverse people break generational curses from systemic racism and ableism. So y'all know this is all my jam. 
we got Natasha here to talk about ableism and racism. And so we're let's get into it. Hello, Natasha. Hello. Yes. yes. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I was enthused, beyond enthused when I when I was uh <laughs> approached. So I'm happy to be here. Yes. Well, you know, we in, in doing this episode, you know, this episode is for Autism Awareness Month. It's April. And, you know, doing a lot of research, you know, one of my board members really wanted me to have this conversation because it's a conversation that we need to have in the black community. And in preparing for this conversation is to talk about autism and developmental disorders and doing the research. Um, there's not a lot of data. No, um, there isn't. <laughs> it was like black children, black folks who are neurodivergent are misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed are not diagnosed until like later in life. Um yep. And I know even from my own experience of having to get my son tested for different learning disabilities or learning differences, that mm -hmm. there's a lot of hesitation to get our children evaluated because of systemic racism, yeah. um, because of institutional oppression. And so there might be a lot of fear associated with diagnosis as well, right? So, Absolutely. So can you explain, like, just because we don't have a lot of data and you're someone who is doing this work and, and, and lives this lives this life and are parenting children who are neurodivergent, um, can you explain what neurodiversity is and why Absolutely. it's important for us as Black families specifically to understand it? Absolutely. So first off, think of neurodiversity basically being a word to mean that our brains neurologically diverge or are different or work differently from a neurotypical brain or what most people think of as normal. But we try not to use the words normal and not normal. We try to go with typical and untypical. So you have neurodivergent, which is someone who has any type of neurological disorder where they think differently. So a lot of things that you wouldn't think are considered neurodivergence are like if you were gifted as a child, you are neurodivergent. If you have depression, if you have high anxiety, if you have anything that makes you think differently and makes your brain process and work differently, you are neurodivergent. And it's something that we have seen throughout our lifetime, but we just now have the tools and the ability to diagnose. And, and, and even now, as you said, there's not a lot of research when it comes to Black people. The research and the diagnosis and the things that we have are for mostly white males. Um, and so a lot of people are just now opening the doors to fully understanding all of that, how it can look, what it, how to help, how to support. Um, but the main thing to understand it is if your brain thinks a little differently, is wired differently, gets different neurons, then you're considered neurodivergent. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for breaking it down. You're like, here's what the two <laughs> words literally mean. And that's really yes. helpful. And it, I, I appreciate it being like not about what's normal and not normal, because like what yes. is normal? There's just this is the way that is typical. And I put typical even in quotes because there's so many ways that we are not all typical. Right. And I, I sometimes exactly. I'm like, I'm not I'm, I don't know if I'm normal, neurotypical or atypical, you know. Um, yes. And it's important for us to find that out, right? Especially as parents who are raising children and also find out for ourselves um, as exactly. adults, like black adults being raised, being raised in this country. There's a lot of stressors and factors that impact us as black people. And so there's all these different sensations and, and, and ways that we um, are targeted that could increase our anxiety or, or lead to us being depressed, you know? So I imagine exactly. like we should be doing, we sh there should be more data and more information about um, how this shows up in our community. 
And absolutely. And honestly, when parents are trying to figure it out and try to navigate these different spaces to get resources or to get tested or to get diagnosed or to get treatment, um, once they do find out that their children have a diagnosis, um, it's really complicated sometimes to navigate those spaces. I know for me, when I was getting my son assessed, because I realized that he was, because I was volunteering in the classroom and I was supporting at school, I was like, mm -hmm. okay, so he's not processing the information at the same speed as the other students, or he's not, right. he's not following the steps in the same, like with the same, um, step by step it was like they had to repeat the steps or things like that so i was like oh something 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 feels off and it wasn't that there was something inherently wrong with him but i was just like yeah he's not processing the same i know he understands it mm -hmm. um but it, maybe it's a he he understands it in a different way it needs to be communicated to him in a different way and i had learned ways that i needed to communicate with him as his parent in his home but i also needed to be able to figure out a way to communicate that with his school like I need to right. be able to explain to the school, like, hey, when you give him instructions, you need to do it this way. This is how it works for him. And they were doing it just the traditional or standard way that they do it with all students. And I'm like, no, that's not the way he's going to process this. And so I did the effort of like figuring it out and like requiring the test and in that process, learning so much, like and just being like overwhelmed with the information. So and and I end up like having to get a lawyer and all the things to like get his needs met. But. I'm just curious, like, how do you recommend and encourage and support folks to navigate these educational systems to get the best support for our children who may be neurodivergent? And what should we be looking for or asking for? Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. So the first thing that is super important to me is exactly what you talked about, and that is the fear of actual diagnosis. Hmm. But here's why that's so important. Um, a lot of people are so afraid to have their child diagnosed, but a lot of times that diagnosis is what gets you the support you need. What I mean by that is if your child is having issues with comprehending information, if your child maybe um, has a speech issue, if your child uh, delay, if your child, if they, if they have these different challenges and you go and you ask these certain schools to support your child or to give them support resources or to teach them differently, they're going to ask where your IEP or 504 is, period. That's all it, all it, especially if we're talking specifically public school. They're going to ask what IEP or 504 you have. Um, because Can you tell folks what IEP stands for? I, absolutely. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> so when your child goes to school, um, if they have any type of, of special support needs, um, then you usually would need to have an IEP, which is an individualized education program for your child. Um even if your child is not necessarily in the special education program, meaning that they, they have a specific SPED instructor and things like that, they could have an, they could go to regular classes but have an aide that's there to, to help them and make sure that they're processing information or teaching it differently to them. They could have specific classes where they need extra support, like speech or occupational therapy, and they could go to regular classes. Or they could be in a special education program completely, however it is. If they're getting special support through the school, they usually have an IEP or a 504. Both of those things are an individualized support plan, education plan for your child. How can your child best thrive and learn in a school environment if they have whatever challenges or delays that they have? How can we support them through? Um, and so what happens is in a lot of times in these public schools, they the teachers are overworked over over 
over criticized over the the um excuse me the curriculum that they have doesn't allow for a lot of connection for a lot of learning your children and things like that and so to them if you don't have an iep or 504 they can't do anything for you your child's a problem child and then you see all of the issues that we have with a child instead of the figuring out why that child is acting out in the class or why that child can't sit still or why that child isn't processing information, they become a discipline problem. And it happens more often to our children than any other children. We know that. That is the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the children either having trauma or having some type of neurodiversity and not getting the support they need that would that that only comes apparently in a lot of these schools from actually having an IAP or a 504. Right. That's really helpful information. And you're so right. If we don't have these parameters in place that require the schools to provide our children the supports that they need, our children will be labeled as bad discipline issues and they'll get pushed out right and it's connected to it's you know it's connected to like neurodivergence it's connected to adhd it's connected to like learning disabilities and you know i hear all the time there's data that shows that um that schools or the government or the state or whatever creates more jail beds based on our reading levels at a certain grade whether it be third or fourth grade and so if those if those things aren't in place if you're if you're a sixth grader but you're still reading at a third grade level but you don't have an IEP you don't have anything they automatically assume okay this child is not even going to graduate and if they do graduate they're going to be criminalized at some point in their lives right and so and so instead of them creating the resources to support our children they won't do that without the the resources to, to basically to keep them in prison to criminalize them yeah yeah and so we do need these supports. And I know there's so much stigma and taboo um, because we don't trust. And it, rightfully so. Black folks don't trust a lot of institutions, especially educational systems. And so we don't want our children to be labeled. We don't want our children to be tracked. We don't want our children to be pushed out and put into these specialized classes because then we feel like there's so much taboo and stigma associated with it. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the way that we get our kids the resources and the supports they need. And so I think that's really important. Um And you're right also about what you said about the discipline, right? So within black families, many of us find that the lack of understanding neurodivergence um, in our children leads to them receiving harsher discipline or harsher punishment for their behaviors that are sometimes, most of the times, out of their control, right? Um, And it leads to, potentially leads to like frustration on a parent's part, right? Like, I don't know what to do. My kid's not listening, you know, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm overwhelmed. And so it leads to also more discipline, even at home as well. And I know the work that you're doing is about breaking generational curses, not only in institutions like schools, but also in our homes. And I know you do a lot of incredible work around positive discipline. Um, So as a positive discipline educator with two neurodivergent children, what is positive discipline? And how can it help black families who are experiencing these challenges and frustrations? Absolutely. So positive discipline, I always tell people to think about it as um, back when when Freud was spitting all of the stuff he was spitting, there was someone on the opposite end who was friends with him originally, but decided that they were thought very differently and they stopped being friends after a while. His name was uh, was uh, Alfred Adler. And he was a psychologist and psychiatrist, just like Freud, but he had a different view. He believed that people needed community and a sense of belonging and significance in that community in order to thrive. Mm. Um, 
And most of the work of positive discipline is based off of that and add additions of that, such as, so when you hear me say things like mistakes or learning opportunities, when you hear me say things like connecting with someone before correcting them, uh, when I say misbehavior is communicating unmet needs, those are all based, based off his theology. And so is positive discipline. Positive discipline was built off, off of basic uh, Alfred Adler's theology of humans needing community and a sense of belonging and significance and everything that they do that we consider misbehavior or acting out is basically an affront to not feeling that sense of belonging and significance in their community which when you think about that as a black person in america uh speaks volumes mm -hmm. as to the plight that we are in is black people in america um now the issue that most people will have is when they think of anything positive, when they think of parenting for liberation, conscious parenting, gentle parenting, all these different things that we call, we call basically what I feel like is all the same thing. <laughs> they seem to think of permissive parenting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I will admit some of them sound more permissive than others, which is, <laughs> but with positive discipline, there's also a big, big emphasis on balance. So mutual respect and encouragement for both the child and for you as a parent in your household. And they call it kind and firm at the same time. Um, and then there's emphasis on making sure that that child or person feels capable in their community, that they're encouraged to have some type of constructive power, personal power and autonomy in themselves and in their community. And then we look at teaching important social and life skills for that community. Uh, at school, home, whatever community that child is in. Uh, and so that's what encompasses positive discipline. And as I said, I chose positive discipline because I was looking for balance. Uh, I did feel like some of the different conscious, positive, gentle parenting methods that were out there were a little bit more permissive. And I was looking for a balance. And so I like positive discipline. But then I noticed that there was a lack of Black resources and Black educators mm -hmm. and black information and that some of this stuff can get very whitewashed and privileged in speaking because it doesn't have a black lens and i said well i guess that's gonna be me so <laughs> here we are here we are and i'm so glad that you took that up you know i'm so glad that you were like okay you did all your research first of all to go all the way back to freud and wait who's this other philosophy Alfred Adler <laughs> Alfred Adler that we yeah. never heard about so big him up a little bit because you know we only hear about Freud all the time um yes. <laughs> that that is so inherent to the work that we do at Parenting for Liberation like one of our buckets of work is around community building because it is about yeah. the connection the relationships like we have to feel connected to people right um and then another part of our work is around uh the self-love and self-healing like like parents at times we lose ourselves and we only focus on our kids but we have to also have that balance like you said like you want to strike a balance between the child's needs and the adult's needs and that we all feel like we have a role to play um and i also love the piece around like power and autonomy and voice and uh, you know agency for everyone the kids and the adults in the household so I really love that. And I'm glad that you are here, you know, bringing in the the conversation and, and bringing in the conversation around racism and ableism that exists and how sometimes the parenting world could feel so whitewashed. And so I appreciate you being in this world with us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, even speaking on that, when you start looking at um, those ideas, what you talked about of like, you know, community of power and autonomy and of mutual respect and limits and boundaries, when you 
stepping outside of just the black families and when you look at neurodivergent families or parents who have children who have any type of um uh disability or where they don't are not as they're not as able as others a lot of times that child doesn't feel any power or community um not necessarily because the parents refuse to give them that but because the parents don't necessarily know how to give them that Usually the parent already feels overwhelmed. The parent doesn't understand the child, especially if it's autism or ADHD or those things where we do act differently. We do react differently. We do understand differently. Um, They really don't know how to help their child. And so they make their child feel like an other unconsciously. Mm. Um, And then they don't give their child a lot of power usually because their child may be nonverbal, like one of my children is. And so they, they don't know how to communicate with their child, but they don't realize that also means their child doesn't know how to communicate with them. And so you use a, you lose a lot of your power in that. And you don't feel a sense of belonging and significance in your home or in other communities. And so that's why we see a lot of times um, autistic children, ADHD children being loners and being very much, you know, stuck in the house, not wanting to have friends, not only wanting to be on online is because they don't really get a sense of community or power. Mm. And that's so important and so vital for us to feel whole and connected. Like it's a Absolutely. strong sense of self is the connection. I, you know, humans are kind of like pack rats. Like we like to, we need to be and connected to other people. I think that's why solitary confinement, right? People are trying to like rule that out because it actually really impacts your mental capacity, your brain, your ability to connect. Like we need other humans in order to thrive. Absolutely. And it's why I'm anti-timeout because same thing. It's basically solitary confinement for children. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. And, and, you know, I've been watching some of your videos and actually witnessing you in action. Um, and, um, if y'all haven't seen some of her videos, check them out of her in relationship with her children. Um, and it, you you model you model that that no parent is perfect. Right. I think you said making right. mistakes are learning opportunities. Right. And there's mm-hmm. a way that sometimes, you know, these social media platforms, you know, the parents show uh, this beautiful <laughs> like these beautiful parent child dynamics and it's like oh my gosh is that what positive discipline can do and then you go oh shoot I can't do that uh, that is not how we set up in our house right and I appreciate right. yours because you're like nah this is real you know and you show that it's a learning process that you don't always get it right um, so do you mind sharing like what are some of the challenges you've had in utilizing positive dif- discipline methods in your own parenting um, and how you overcome them and you know any recommendations you have for folks who are going to try this out Absolutely. So the first thing that I have a problem with and everybody's going to have a problem with when they first start is that they think they're going to trying to be the perfect parent instead of just trying to find a positive solution. Um, So always know what your goal is and remember what your goal is because you kind of get lost in trying to be the perfect parent. Um, and that's not the goal. The goal isn't to be the perfect parent. The per- the goal is whatever life skills and characteristics that you're wanting to instill in your child. Um, and then making sure that you have a positive and mutually loving and community-based household. Outside of that, you know, how you get to it can go about many different ways as long as that foundation is there. But what tends to happen is we get lost in being the perfect parent. Who, who does no wrong and doesn't put all this trauma that was put on me, on my kids. I'm not going to do none of that. Blah, 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 blah. It's just not realistic. And you will make mistakes. And that's okay as long as you remember how to recover from those mistakes and look for a, f- focus on solutions for the future. It's going to happen. 
Um, and so that's so important to me. And then don't be trying to keep up with the Joneses. What I mean by <laughs> that is, you, y'all see, I my, my, if you go to my page, my, my videos are very blurry because I use a nanny cam because I'm not trying to sit and have a tripod and ring light in my kids' eyes. And that's, I'm not positive parenting. I'm parenting for TV if I start doing that. Cool. And so I catch it when I catch it. And if I don't catch it, we're not posting that because I didn't catch it. I catch whatever gets caught on the nanny cams because I'm still a mom and I don't want to lose my my positive discipline and my parenting and my relationship with my children because I'm trying to show y'all a relationship with my children. That would make no sense to me. Mm. Um, so I I'm, I don't look like other Facebook pages. I don't look like other positive parenting, positive discipline, conscious parenting pages because my videos are grainy and <laughs> straight from the nanny cam and you're going to see me in action. And I know there's been a lot of debate back and forth about that. Um, but for me, because I have autism as well, my children have autism and I have autism. Um, and from my childhood growing up, I was very poor. I have a lot of trauma. Um, my mom was a single mother of seven and multiple different, you know, fathers in there and things. And so it was a rough life. And my siblings could not even conceptualize. A lot of people around me, my family could not conceptualize what positive discipline would even look like uh, until they saw me doing it. And that realization made me realize that that was probably true for other people in the world too. And so a lot of times I get pushed back on showing videos like of my children having a tantrum and us walking through it um, because they say, well, you know, that's your child's personal flow. And I say, well, all of this, everything that I show, me dancing with my children, having tea parties, me, you know, the good and the bad, all of it is personal. It, that that's kind of what happens when you're showing your household. I'll, so whether it's a tantrum, but a tantrum isn't negative to us. A tantrum is a display of emotion that we have to learn and teach them how to cope. And we have to learn and teach them how to deal with disappointment or whatever the issue is. It's not a negative thing in my household. And so I don't, we, I don't have a problem showing it. And right now my children don't have a problem showing it. And if they get older and they say, Hey mom, I was, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, can you take it down? I will. But as of right now, we're teaching that all of that is normal and okay. Mm, Yeah, it is. And I appreciate it um, because I think you're right. We don't, at times as a people, we don't necessarily see that positive discipline. Um, We don't know what it looks like. We think that it's something just so outside of our wheelhouse. Um, And I don't think that's true. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that for too long, white supremacy and generational trauma, generational curses that need to be broken, um, have led us to parent in a particular way that doesn't allow us to honor ourselves or honor our children and honor the relationship and connection that we can have with them. And um, I do think it is about not wanting to be perfect and actually just wanting to be in relationship with our children um, and not necessarily have power over or be the boss or our children just listen to us with respect, you know, like... Yes, with respect, but not just like listen to us because we're the adult without being like, well, I have a question or is that right? You know, like it's okay to be Mm -hmm. in a a mutual exchange um, and to have conversations with our children um, in ways that they can communicate, you know, so I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm curious, like, what do you think or what do you wish that most that more black families understood both about positive discipline and then also about 
neurodivergence? So with positive discipline, I wish that more Black families understood that they can still be them in positive discipline. Um, And what I mean by that is sometimes, for some reason, people feel like they have to start talking like Mary Poppins. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And they have to become this whole, like, code switching almost, you know what I mean? In order to bring a positive aspect to their house. And so a big part of my seven-week course is me reminding them, hey, like, do you think there's something wrong with your heritage? Do you think there's something wrong with your vernacular? Do you think there's something wrong with like these things? If you don't, then these things can be, can stay and you can still positive discipline. Listen, I am country is all get out. I am <laughs> I Georgia. Hear, I hear a little twang. I hear a little twang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm country. I am Georgia all day. I am black. And so there'll be times where I'll be like, hey, little shawty, what are you trying to do? What Can I help you? <laughs> like, it's still, it's still there. Hey, little mama. It's still there, but it's positive in there. You know what I mean? Instead of me saying, hey, get that out of your mouth and go sit down. I say, hey, little shawty, what are you trying to do exactly? Can I help you? What, what's going on here? But right. I'm still me. I'm still black. I'm still country. I'm still Georgia. And I'm just positive now. And I, I think that's something that um like even some of my parents they cuss and i'm like do you have a problem with your children cussing do you have a problem with you cussing if you don't you don't have to take it away you just have to be positive don't cuss your kids cuss the situation yes <laughs> like that, yes. i don't i mean yeah. I, I be cussing and my kid think it's the funniest thing <laughs> as long as i ain't cussing him out i'm cussing mm-hmm. about the situation you know i exactly. really appreciate that because for too long right um yeah gentle parenting positive parenting all of these parentings right have often been framed as like white you know um yep that white people stuff yeah Mm -hmm. like oh you you trying to parent like them white people that ain't how we do it and it's like "Mm, (laughs) so how we do it it's like we equate gentle parenting with whiteness and we equate tough love with blackness and that's not actually that's not actually true it's not actually real like we we don't have to own tough love like, who said that that was a black thing? We didn't make that Not up. Not only that, when you look at our, so when you look at parenting across the world, when you look at indigenous tribes and how they parent yes. prior to colonization. Get, get into it. Look at, yeah, when you look at like um, different books like Kendezi, The Congo Art of Babysitting, when you look at the different tribes prior to colonization. Prior to colonization. A lot of the ways that we, of course, now we have more technology, you know what I mean? We have more understanding of how uh, human development and child development. So, of course, there's things at it. But the idea of community, of mutual respect with children, of teaching them to be capable and a part of their community has been indigenous to us for forever prior to colonization. For longer than we have been in America. That came from industrialization. And them Europeans. (laughs) Right. So that's why I'm always saying like, I'm like, oh my gosh, we think gentle parenting is is like a white thing. And we think that this Mm -hmm. tough, harsh, discipline, you know, authoritarian parenting is black. But in reality, if you look at black prior to our arrival here in this country, if you Mm -hmm. go back and you go back and look at the way our ancestors parented their children. When I went back to Ghana, I was asking, I'm like, so what, what's the relationship between parent and child here? Children are sacred. 
children mm-hmm. are loved. Children are supposed to be a part of the conversation. Like children should be yep. there listening. Like it was like yep. the children should follow the adults around and be like they're learning and absorbing and they are invited into the spaces. Whereas here we got exactly. children are meant to be seen, not heard. We hear stay out of yep. grown folks business. That is not yep. the way our people, our people parent. And so like we have to question here in the U.S., black folks, like where do we learn where do we learn that? Who taught us that? Who taught us that we're we supposed know to be what tough? We learned. we learned that from survival, from transatlantic slaves. But you we also but, not heard but, because you didn't want them to die. Right. And when did and, you learn about whipping? How, yeah. who, who taught you? Who taught us that? Who taught you that? And you know where that comes from. We know. You know where that comes from. And so it's like, um, who do you want to be? I'm going to whoop you so master won't whoop you because if master whoops you, it'll be worse, right? So then it's a protection. And then we right. we kept we kept thriving that. Then it became, I'm going to whoop you so police don't whoop you. I'm going to whoop you so the school doesn't whoop you. Right. And on and on and on, right? Exactly. Um, so we got to let that go. We can't let mm-hmm. white supremacy or post-traumatic slave syndrome run our households or run how we parent our children because we got to return to our our indigenous ways of parenting and so I appreciate this conversation because for so long those things get labeled as white when really if you think about where we learned a lot of the violence and punishment and all of that stuff we actually learned that from white supremacy from whiteness exactly so I'm like actually tough parenting (laughs) and tough love is it ain't ours we don't want it. it. You know, we don't want that. Um, Looking at children as an other is not ours. Children were always looked at as like the sacred, beautiful thing. And they were mutually respected and they were taught our customs and they were a part of the conversation. And then, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to that, Black people. So that's what we want them to know about positive parenting. That positive mm-hmm. parenting is blackity black, black, black. And you can make it as yes. black as you want it. Now, before we conclude, what do you want folks to know about neurodivergence in the Black community? Absolutely. So what I want black the Black community to know about neurodivergence in our communities is that there's a lot more undiagnosed neurodivergence in your communities than you know of and think of. That uncle who stays with everybody's grandma who's been living there since he was a young kid and now he's 40, 50 and he's still there. And when you go in his room or touch anything he know and he go off on you, he's neurodivergent. <laughs> that aunt who has the most biggest thing in this house and everything has to be turned in the exact same order at all times and got and she got plastic on her couch. And if you make any type of mess, she flip out and make you clean her whole house, she's neurodivergent. Ooh, that other uncle her. who can never remember. Oh yes. <laughs> That other uncle who can't ever remember with his keys, his phone, whatever he done put anywhere, he never remembers it. He always needing to smoke and always need to move and dance. He's neurodivergent. Mm. That <laughs> that mom or aunt or grandma who's always they nerves bad. You scared them. I'm worried. I got so much stress, child. I don't know what to do. They're probably neurodivergent. Listen, we have so much neurodivergent nerves. That's anxiety. And you have that anxiety for a reason, whether it be stress and trauma, whether it be neurodivergency. But when you look at the list of neurodivergence, high functioning anxiety and anxiety disorder is a form of neurodivergence. Depression is a form of neurodivergence. ADD, dyslexia, reading backwards, is a form of neurodiversity. Bipolar disorder, neurodiversity. All of these things, 
not just everybody just seems to look at autism and ADHD, but there are so many things, sensory processing disorder, that aunt who only eats certain foods, that uncle who only eats certain foods, those families don't like their food to touch, family who, who <laughs> don't want you don't want anything to touch them, can't be dirty, don't like to be dirty, want their clothes to be the exact right way, don't like certain textures, they're neurodivergent. And they aren't getting the support that they need because so everybody's so afraid to be labeled. But me being labeled and getting my autism diagnosis allowed me to look at what supports me and my family and what helps me to get through my day. So I learned coping strategies. I learned uh, alternate methods of stemming. So I don't look as different when I'm in different communities. So I can be careful and make sure that I'm protecting myself because I am still black. Mm -hmm. I learned, I learned what I need in different ways to help and, and give myself what I need. Uh, whether it be schedules and routines so that I can stay on track because I get forgetful with my autism and I'll get fixated on a certain project and forget the world. Um, but I know I need those things because I know what I have and I'm able to look and see the different support that's available to me. So getting over labels, Black people, and just acknowledging that you want all of the information and, and that there could be people who are different in our community would help us so much because we would be able to support that aunt who has bad nerves by giving her some coping strategies or some medication before she gets high blood pressure. Cause that's what we're leading to. Mm. Um, that, that uncle who, who can't deal with any type of change in his room and is staying with his and is staying with your grandma because he can't really function out in that regular world. If he'd have had some type of help or support and community, he'd have been able to find his way without having to stay with his, with, with your grandma. And he would be, be able to be more open to change because he would have had exercises and support exercises to help him cope and deal with change. Uh, but we don't do those things because we just say, Oh, that's just uncle Johnny. Just don't go in his room. That's just how he is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was really helpful and insightful. And for me, I'm like, Oh, I have some of those, what I would call them. Oh, I have some of those quirks. I'm the person who yep. doesn't like my food to touch on the plate. I just, yep. I can't, you know, I'm like team no food touch. All I, day. I, I'm I got, team I'm structure. Got, um, you got those triangle plates, the triangle <laughs> plates with the little squares and the triangle and the little rectangle. You don't want oh, it to no, touch. Uh, you know, when you're an adult, you can still be fancy and get what you want. So I have like the glass white Corel nice plates, but they got divided. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you got a straight up bento box. <laughs> You know, I'm learning so much. And I think the beautiful thing of it is, is if we address it, we can provide ourselves with resources and tools, like you said, and coping mechanisms. And also, I think what I'm imagining is what's getting in the way of us acknowledging it is like we internalize it as if something is inherently wrong with us. And yes. and yes, neurodivergence is like a neural difference. Right. But also, I feel mm -hmm. like if we are reflective about our history in this country, um, especially as in folks who, who have gone through so much trauma. Like, to me, it's like after going through so much trauma, it makes sense that we would have all of these impacts on us and our ability. And like, yes, it makes sense why we I would have anxiety. I'm hella afraid because there are things that are literally trying to kill us. So it's like it's a way to also make it make sense to be like, oh, I have all this anxiety and nerves. It makes sense. And now I have tools like I there's a way that I cannot make it say like there's something wrong with me. But actually, like, OK, given the context of our lived experiences, black people, OK, it would make sense why someone would have some of these um, some anxiety or nervousness or worry. 
Because there are valid so, things exactly. to be afraid of. There are valid things exactly. to be worried about. So I, there's a there's a there's research, and of course, like we talked about, a lot of this research is new. But there's research that's coming out that looks and says that trauma, severe trauma, seems to affect our DNA. Like it changes Definitely. our DNA, almost like a natural instinct, Definitely. right? Definitely, epigenetics. So, exactly, the epigenetic standpoint. And so, when we start now, I'm telling you this as a person who is autistic and found out after her children were diagnosed because I said, "Oh, I do all that." That's considered autism? I just thought I was quirky. Exactly. And then went and got diagnosed and realized I had autism too. (laughs) But when we look at this from a genetic standpoint, if if a group of people, Black people, have been subjected to severe trauma for over 400 years in different ways and avenues, you know, we go from transatlantic slave trade and then we come out of that we go to those few years of reconstruction where they were supposed to be helping and they were really just carpet bagging and, and making systems worse. We go to Jim Crow. We go to, you know, redlining, gerrymandering. We go to the school to the prison pipeline system. We go to all these different things Mass that are continuing, mm-hmm. continuing the severe ended. trauma it's on the black community, ongoing. right? Right. Ongoing. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Still now today. Right. So we go through all of that. And we say, how is that modifying us genetically? And is that why we're seeing, because people say things like, uh, then why are we seeing so many people diagnosed with autism? Now, first of all, it's not so many because I still feel like a pariah in my community. But still, <laughs> but outside of that, <laughs> when you look, I'm surprised the numbers aren't staggering because when you look at everything that we have had to deal with as a people and you look at all of the science of what it tells us of early childhood development. It's even if you aren't necessarily neurodivergent, you you're going to have these symptoms of neurodiversity due to trauma. So we when we when we pull out early childhood development, when we go into those textbooks, it talks about secure attachment versus insecure attachment. Are you familiar with that, Trina? Yes, but please elaborate for the listeners. Yes, absolutely. For the listeners, absolutely. So with secure attachment right a baby cries that is their only means of communication because they have an arousal of something their back itches they're hungry whatever that is and they have a need right and so then we as caregivers we go and we figure out oh what's wrong baby you know we're checking them out we're moving them around we're trying to feed them we're changing them but whatever we need to do to fulfill that need so that that child can relax and calm down and be in a safe, uh, a sense of security. And we build trust and an attachment with that child and security through that system, right? But what happens when that child has a need, they feel the need, they cry and to communicate that need, and that need still isn't met because either, oh, we need to let that baby cry it out because they're gonna have to deal with not me not being able to come to it all the time because that is something that has been taught in our communities. or it could just be, you know, I work 12 jobs and I'm really not there to fulfill that child's needs. Or it could be, you know, some of the more brutal situations that we see, like my growing up, where my mom just didn't have the means or she, and she, she didn't have the time because she had seven kids and everybody's needs didn't get met. Whatever it is, that child's need isn't met. They cried, their need isn't met. And so now they're in emotional distress and they have more needs and they cry some more and those needs still aren't met. And so they're in a constant state of emotional distress and mistrust and insecurity about the world and, and world around them. And so 
when we look at this, if you have a secure attachment, if you build that first basic trust, it is the foundational building blocks to other developments that a child needs to have, like causal thinking. A plus B gives me C, like the ability to delay gratification. I know I can wait five minutes and mom is going to come because I trust her to come because when I cry for her, she always comes. So I can wait. The uh, conscious development. I know who I am. I know who the people around me are. I know what my place is in my community because those things have been attached to me with security and the people coming to attend to me. Uh, the identity formation, intellectual potential, being able to build more comprehensive skills and ideas from just causal thinking, relationship skills, social socialization, and then at the end, the ability to concentrate and the ability to handle stress. Those are all built on top of the basic trust from that secure attachment. However, if we have the other alternative of an insecure attachment, a child whose needs aren't met when they cry, who are, is constantly in emotional distress, then we see where a child has none of those building blocks are able to get built on. They don't build that basic trust. They don't think they can trust anyone. So they, they, they don't deal very well with causal thinking, with identity formation, knowing who they are, knowing who the people are around them and how they can depend on them, with delaying gratification. And a lot of times they have a lack of concentration and an inability to handle stress. And so how does that, how does that look? How does that child, uh, how is that displayed and how do we see that? We see that in difficulty with self-regulation difficulty with problem solving, lack of trust and confidence in the world around them, delayed developmentally and socially, maybe even emotional skills, hyperarousal, inability to wait patiently, delayed development of language skills, and easily triggered. Now, doesn't that sound like a lot of the symptoms that we hear of when we talk about autism and ADHD? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's not what that is. That is the impact of trauma on children, young children. Mm. And so... Even if it isn't neurodivergence, those those symptoms, the way that that manifests, that trauma is so similar to neurodiversity that doing the support resource, having the support resources and the things that I use for my autism, for my child's autism and their ADHD would probably help these children of trauma. Yes. Okay. So then what are some tools um, and resources that you want to share with folks who are listening so that they can support um children who may either be experiencing impacted by trauma or neurodivergent and or neurodivergent. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first thing is going to be to understand that if you've met one child with autism or ADHD or this, you met one child, like I want you to think of this neurodiversity the same way we think of blackness, right? The way I prescribe display and live in my blackness may be very different than how another person prescribe mm -hmm. lives in and expresses their blackness and that's okay because we're not among you know that we're all different and that's fine and it's the same thing with autism the way my I, my autism is manifested and displayed is totally different from my children because they've had a constant and i'm gonna knock on wood but for now they've had a constant positive and supportive resource household whereas i did not and I had to learn to get it how I live and, and deal and mask and, 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 and try to be in, in the world that I was in and survive. And my children haven't had that. And so the way that our autism manifests is all very differently, all three of us. Um, and so you have to observe that particular person and figure out what their challenges are, what their triggers are, and how to support them. 
And I know that sounds daunting, but it really isn't because it's the same thing you would do as, as any parent because all your children are different, whether they have neurodiversity or not, you should be observing them and getting to know them as a person. And it's the same thing with a, uh, with a neurodivergent child. Now, some of the things that you're going to be looking at for that neurodivergent child is going to be a little bit different. And what I mean by that is sensory processing. So most of us understand senses as in our external senses, the five that everybody talks about, right? So you talk about smell, sight, hearing, touching, and, and tasting. But what no one really talks about is the two inner, which is our uh, proprioceptive sense, which is the sense that tells me, oh, I got to pee. Oh, it's hot and it's cold out here. Oh, I'm breathing. That sense that tells you the internal workings of your body and what's going on with your body. And then we have the, uh, I believe it's voluntive, voluntive, yeah, um, sense, which is a sense of movement, your balance, your flexibility. Um, but all seven of those senses are important because usually with neurodiversity, our brains are wired differently. And so the way we experience our senses are different. Um, and so what I mean by that is, and we're going to get really scientific, but I'm going to, I'm going to not dumb it down, but make it in layman's terms. So basically when you touch grass, you have neurons in your brain, signals that go to your brain and say, Ooh, this is some grass you touching. This is some green grass, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I have autism and I am a sensory seeker, is what we call it. My sick, there's not enough signals in my brain telling me this is green grass. It's like maybe a few or none. And so when I touch that grass, I'm like, man, I can barely feel this grass. Is this grass? Let me put my whole body on it. Let me sniff it. Let me put my face in it. I got to make sure it's grass. And we call them a sensory seeker because they're not getting enough signals. And so they overload whatever they do. You know, so the kid you see who puts their mouth on everything, who throws their whole body in the bucket when you're trying to do a sensory activity, who who gets into everything and they get into Vaseline and spread it all over their body and all this <laughs> other stuff. Right. They yeah. want to touch their poop and explore and see what the poop do. That's a sensory seeker. They're not getting enough neuro, uh, uh, signals to their brain to tell them you're touching this, you're tasting this, you're feeling this, you're hopping. And so they want more. So they're the ones that's jumping and bouncing all over your houses. They're, they're the ones who want to be thrown and spin around and, and want to wrestle. And all. They need they, their senses. They're not getting enough and they want more. And then you have the direct opposite of that, right? So you have the kid who touches the grass and is like, whoa, this grass is, ow, did you feel it? It's spiky. It stabbed me. I can't be on the grass. Uh-uh. I don't want to do the grass. That's our sensory avoider. And what's basically happening for them is the signals that go to their brain are overloading. They're getting too much signals. And so their brain is saying, ooh, that's some hot, that's some grass. Ooh, that is spiky. Don't touch that. <laughs> and so you get the kids who can't wear clothes. Yes. Who, when they do wear clothes, the tags, they say it feels no like a tags. knife is stabbing them. You have to take the tags off. Yes. Who can't wear socks because that little lining in the socks feels like and when, I, and when I'm saying this, I'm not exaggerating. This is how it feels to them. No, because their, their brain is telling them a totally different signal than what you get. And so when I say a knife in the back, that's really what it feels like to them. It doesn't feel like that to you, and that's fine. But it does to them. Um, Legit. They'll the be like, this tag is stabbing me. It's stabbing yeah, me. Yeah, it feels I'm like it's like stabbing me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's how that is. That's working from a scientific point, is that those senses... And so watching a child understanding their senses, if you got a child that's 
bouncing off the walls. I have checklists, but you know, that's in my courses and everything. But if you have a child who's chewing on every or trying to put everything in their mouth, they're getting into everything, they're bouncing off the walls, they're jumping from high places and crashing into you. Okay, you got a sensory seeker. You got someone who needs sensory. They need activities. They need movement. And you got to provide that or they're going to seek it out and tear up your house. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you have a sensory avoider, you know, they're not eating certain foods. And you like, oh, my God, this child going to be malnutrition. All they want to do is eat nuggets and potatoes every day. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> that resonates. If they're refusing, they don't want to take a bath unless it's a, it's a certain exact temperature. They don't want to touch stuff. They don't like slimy stuff. They don't want to be cold. They don't want to be wet. They don't want to be dirty. You got a sensory avoider. Um, and then you have to realize that with that sensory avoider, if you don't monitor the situations that they're in and how over overloading their senses can be, they will have meltdowns on you. They'll get overloaded by because they're constantly getting signals. Every little thing they do, you getting, you're getting maybe f 10 signals. They're getting 100 for the exact same thing. Yeah, so they're overloaded. They're overstimulated. They're overloading, yeah. exactly. And so if you don't control that environment, if you don't support them in, in, in understanding, okay, no, nah, we're not going to put no tags in your clothes. you like, you just don't have to learn. You're going to get a lot more meltdowns. And yeah. whew, meltdowns are rough. Yeah, this is really helpful. I mean, all of those scenarios, I could imagine people in my family and my community or things I've seen on TV. And I'm like, okay, it's really helpful to have the science. And I really appreciate you like breaking it down in layman's terms because I'm like, oh, yeah, like this whole time, I'm just like, that's what that was a sensory overload sensory yeah. avoidant. I was like, thank you. Thank you for giving me the language. I appreciate that. Um, and I know you have classes where you talk about all of these things. Um, so can yeah. you tell folks where they can find you and your resources? Absolutely. So my website is supernovamama.com. That's all one word, supernova. And then mama is M-O-M-M-A dot uh, com. And I have workshops there. I have a workshop that specifically caters to neurodivergent families and teaching them. It's called Take Me As I Am. And mm -hmm. it teaches what we just talked about, sensory senses. It talks about the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown and how to, um, what's the best word, how to react to each of those um, as a positive disciplined parent and how that looks and how that's different. We talk about, you know, routines, uh, especially for neurodivergent young children uh, and how that can look. Because there's so many different ways that can look, depending on the child, depending on you, depending on what you're good at. Because everybody is not going to be good at um, a picture routine chart. What if you got ADHD and can't remember that? So making it as simple as possible for you, but still giving your children um, a routine is important, especially because usually young neurodivergent children they need to know how their day is going to go. They need to have some security yes, need a schedule. Uh, because they get a lot of anxiety from change and differences and transitions. And so making sure that they know what's going to happen in their day is kind of very important for them. Yeah. Yes. I remember having a calendar up. Yeah. And a schedule <laughs> and with pictures that I tried to hand draw. <laughs> yes. and, and that's stamps. also an option so I, I go through all of that with them so yeah. we talk about that we talk about different ways of communication because uh sometimes an autistic child can be nonverbal, meaning they fully understand and and uh the the language and the conversations around them and songs around them but they have trouble speaking and it's for different reasons it's, it's never one reason <laughs> so far that i've seen 
uh, it could be a processing reason. It could actually be a sensory reason and learning how to use their mouth the same way we do and watching us and not understanding exactly how to uh, form the words and language with their mouth as effortlessly as we do. There's so many different reasons why. Um, and, but they could be nonverbal. And so giving them alternate levels of communication. Um, so we talk about so many different things in that course, but it's specifically for neurodivergent families. Uh, and then I have a course that's specifically for black families. Um, and it's kind of very similar to what you do, Trina. Um, it is a day of, for parents specifically, as opposed to positive discipline, we talk about you. So we talk about how parents stress. We talk about what the parents' triggers are. We talk about where that trigger might have come from by doing some childhood memory unlocking. Um, we talk about how they display anger and some alternate methods of, of displaying anger. And we talk about how to build their own common corners, what I call it, because I feel like as a Black or neurodivergent parent, just like your kids need a, com a place where you, where you can regulate, you need a place where you can learn to regulate because you didn't get it when you were a child. It is what it is, and so you need it. Um, and then we talk about um, the different ways uh, or coping strategies you can have and, and how those will work for you. And lastly, we, we do one little positive discipline uh, activity, and it's called uh, Laddership to Leadership. It's important to me. It basically talks about the the similarities between to, uh, parent this parenting that we're doing right now, this punishment reward parenting, and what kings used over citizens, white supremacy used over black people, men used over women, and um, nerd uh, excuse me neurotypical and able-bodied people use over neurodiverse and disabled people, um, and I just I I let them tell me. <laughs> so we list it, we list it out. And then I asked them if if any of these things seem familiar with parenting. And it's a really un uncomfortable conversation, but it's important that we realize that a lot of the ways that we parent now come from capitalism and and you know uh patriarchal systems and mm -hmm. basically supremacy. european practices yep white supremacy yes yes and exactly. so and so we look at how they are very similar and then we talk about um vertical excuse me uh going from vertical uh, leadership to going to horizontal, horizontal. leadership yeah, yeah. and so we talk about what collaborative leadership looks like and what collaborative parenting can look like and that's how we close that class out um it. and so those are my two two-hour workshops and then i have a eight week positive discipline course and it's yeah everybody's always like eight weeks tasha it was seven weeks and now i didn't add it on it's eight weeks <laughs> yes eight weeks <laughs> because as a black or neurodivergent or black and neurodivergent because that's my demographic i deal with black families i deal with neurodivergent families and i love 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 and deal with black neurodivergent families um you need to understand first off why a lot of families don't even understand why they would need to do positive discipline versus what they've already been doing. And because we don't get taught child development, we don't get taught, um, you know, of, of what we just talked about with secure attachment versus insecure attachment and how that affects a child and what those foundational blocks are. We don't, if we don't talk about, you know, triggers and how the different sets of the brain, you know, going from, um, survival state in the brain to emotional state in the brain down to um, being able to actually executive functioning of the brain and being able to think. We don't talk about any of that. 
uh, when you go to have your baby, when you go and visit the hospital, when I went to all these breastfeeding classes, no one taught me child development. That was something I had to learn on my own. Um, and I think it's important for parents to have that. So there's one day of that. There's one day of exactly what we talked about in the Black parenting class. So there's one day of on the parents, of them learning how they stress, what their triggers are, talking about coping strategies and how to deal with anger. And then there is a day that talks specifically about neurodiversity. And then after that, we do the positive discipline spiel. But those are the three things that I feel like are important specifically to my demographic. And so I added those days in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. So folks can find out about all of that at your website, supernovamama.com. Yes. That's right. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me um, and dropping so much knowledge and wisdom about not only what it means to be a positive parent who's blackity black, 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 but also how can we show up and support and understand um, our neurodivergent um, black community members because they're all around us. And after that list, I'm like, shoot, a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And just remember, you know, different doesn't mean wrong. Different just means different. And so if we get out of this whole black and white view of thinking and start opening ourselves up to some grays and open ourselves up to the fact that different can mean just different, we'll be all right. And different can also mean amazing and beautiful yes. and creative. And, you know, like, what did they say? You're not meant to fit in. You're supposed to stand out kind of thing. Like absolutely yeah so how do we honor that so thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed this conversation um yeah absolutely thank you for having me thank you for listening to this episode of parenting for liberation did you know that parenting for liberation is an organization that provides resources to black families we do healing justice work educational workshops and also community building if you want to support this work and enjoy what you're listening to, you can join us on our website, parentingforliberation.org. And if you want to donate, check us out at parentingforliberation.org backslash donate.